Welcome to the Open Book Podcast. What you're about to hear is a live recording of an event that took place at the Open Book Festival in September 2022. In this discussion called Load Unshedding, Kyle Cohen and Cape Town Mayor Jordan Hill Lewis speak to Salim Fakir about ESCOM and the future of energy provision in Cape Town. Here's their conversation. Morning, everybody. Um, v- welcome to today's session. Um, uh, we will start in a second or so. I will introduce Kyle and uh, Mayor Gordon Lewis. But just to say uh, thank you for coming. I know it's, it's not too early. It's 10 o'clock is a reasonable time and that you've had good coffee. I think today is um, a really fascinating discussion, although it's focused on Kyle's uh, uh, investigative work which is put together in a book called Sabotage. And everybody's interested about ESCOM, the plans for the future, the electricity crisis. Uh, There are also global developments uh, in the energy sector. I mean, we won't go into that, but (laughs) it's always relevant to keep that in mind. Uh, But a little bit about myself. I'm Salim Fakir. Uh, I run a new foundation called the Africa Climate Foundation. Uh, Very active in the energy sector in South Africa, but we also have interesting work in Senegal, Nigeria, lots of interesting stuff, similar kinds of issues. Uh, so it's real pleasure for me to be able to chair this and engage Kyle and the mayor on the book and outside of the book, uh, if we can do that. Uh, <clears throat> so we're going to go for 40, 45 minutes, uh, and then we will have one question at a time. You can address it to anybody here. Uh, don't address it to me, but definitely Kyle and, and uh, Jordan. Uh, so, uh, Kyle, if I may kick off with you, um, I think first it will be good to understand your background and um, your role in investigative uh, journalism. Uh, what are the reasons you wrote the book? And I presume it's got to do with uh, ESCOM files at News24. And uh, I just want to say, you know, I think uh, from my point of view, I read the book uh, literally twice, and um, uh, I've been involved in this field for 10, maybe over 15 years, uh, particularly in the energy sector. Uh, Very rarely do you get the inside story of what's going on in Eskom. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we look at Eskom, it's largely uh, perception from outside. But the details of what goes on is, uh, one, it's really interesting, but also scary. Yeah. And uh, I have a couple of questions around, around uh, the elements of uh, the issues that you raise in the book. But if we can start off with that, and then uh, may I'll go to you next. Yeah. Um, so uh, as part of my work at News24, you know, we, we're, a, we're a team of four investigative reporters, um, and we, about in, in early 2021, we were given a a large, um, and, I, and I use that word purposefully, a large selection of files that took us quite a while to get a handle on and start working through. And we, it, it was mainly centered around massive amounts of corruption at Kusile, um, which, you know, for, for the benefit of those in the audience who don't know, it's, it's one of our two major new coal-fired power stations that broke ground in around 2007, 2008. They were supposed to be finished between five and six years ago. They're still not finished. Um, they double over budget. They, you know, many years late. And it, the documents effectively set out 
you know, root and twig of corruption at right. Kusile. So we started publishing a whole bunch of stories around that. And in, in, you know, you don't just take a document and write a story on it. You speak to people, you investigate, you, you try and dig a bit deeper. And we, I figured out towards the end of the year, you know, I was, I was on contract to write a book for Penguin, and I thought, oh, well, what on earth am I going to write about? And, and, it, and my publisher and I were having this discussion, Marita and I were talking, and, and, and it just clicked. You know, I've spent a year, mm -hmm. maybe a bit more, digging into ESCOM. Um, what we're missing is a big picture story. Right. So let's tell the big picture story. And fortunately, in, in that year's worth of investigation, and this speaks to transparency and getting in the inside track, we managed to build relationships. We managed to cultivate sources. We managed to look in detail at things that have never been looked at at ESCOM before. And in doing that, we realized that the doors had actually been opened. You know, I think any journalist right. in the country who has an impetus to work on ESCOM could probably go to ESCOM right now and ask for information and get it. Um, whereas three years ago, that would have been impossible. Four years ago, impossible. And that's really how it was such an important time to, to sort of capitalize right. on, on, on that. But the problem becomes is that the people that are there now that have opened the doors won't be there forever. Right. So we need to dig mm. and we need to make hay while the sun shines as quickly as possible. Because what this does is the door can be closed again, but they can never close it as successfully. Because now we know too much about what's actually cooking. So, so <coughs> if... Uh, if I can just pick up a couple of things, uh, I think it's very it would be useful to you know for the audience to understand the importance of ESCOM because mm. I think uh, the challenge we have is despite the fact we you know your book talks about sabot sabotage specifically, there are other issues with ESCOM. Uh, yeah. It has huge debt. Uh, perhaps uh, uh, there's also reforms in in the play to mm. split up es ESCOM mm. yeah. and the world of electricity markets are changing. They're yeah. becoming a lot more uh, dynamic. Uh, there's cheaper sources of energy and so on. Yeah. But in your book, you also touched about ESCOM in the past, and then there was a very good period of ESCOM. I remember when I was reading ESCOM's balance sheet, in fact, it was a company in the black, not in the red. That's right. And suddenly, now we've got a 400 billion uh, debt uh, problem. But there are some strategic issues, challenges with ESCOM. Mm -hmm. And then, Mayor, I will come back to you around the strategy that the municipalities are, are pursuing. Mm. Uh, if you can just talk a little bit about, effectively, ESCOM is a choke point. Yes. In other words, if you, if ESCOM failed, mm. uh, the entire South African economy is at risk. Yeah. Uh, just to, to, to talk about that a little bit. Salim, not only the economy, but our, our very livelihoods right. and safety as well. Um, I, I often use this example because it's the only recent one that, that we have to refer to. If you look at what happened in Venezuela, in the last couple of years, they, they had massive blackouts. Right. Electricity was gone for weeks at a time. Rioting started within a couple of days. Looting started within a few right. days. Um, unfortunately, we had a, a slight foreshadowing in July last year, and not to minimize the fact that 300 people died in July, but those riots were very opportunistic and obviously instigated by you know, some elements of, of, of political dissidents. The kind of rioting I'm talking about, if the electricity goes off right now and stays off for two weeks, will be catastrophic. Right. Um, I don't think this country would ever recover from it. Right. Um, not mentally, not physically, um, not financially. Right. Um, 
South Africa is in an extremely, extremely precarious position as, as we are right now. Everything seems fine when you walk out the door and you drive down the road, everything functions well and everything looks okay. We're in danger of being grey listed because we're not doing enough to control money laundering. Terrorists could be pushing money through our banks right now, we don't know that. We've had successive ratings downgrades over the years. It's fluctuated, but people don't want to bring money here. The biggest reason people don't want to bring money here is because there isn't a stable electricity supply. There are lots of other considerations. There are overactive unions who are not, you know, people don't engage with them properly and they, you know, sort of control the way that companies hire and fire. Um, but let's talk about electricity just as an example. So load shedding is a symptom of a system that has deteriorated and broken down over many, many years. And it's inconvenient and it's not really fun, but it, it's, it's a sign. It's, it's, the, it's the, the outward showing manifestation, manifestation of a deeper problem. Right. So to, to put this into perspective, South Africa's peak demand in winter just passed was about 30, let's, let's call it 30,500 megawatts. Obviously, we fell short of meeting that in some, some cases. Um, on average, about a quarter of ESCOM's generation capacity is offline due to breakdowns. That's about 15,000, 16,000 megawatt out of a build capacity of 46,000 megawatt. Um, for economic growth to happen, we need to fill a gap of four to 6,000 megawatts now to stop load shedding and keep electricity supply stable. Then we need an additional four to 6,000 megawatts for people to even start thinking about building a factory, about starting a, a, a new manufacturing line for renewables or doing anything like that. And it, it's such a pervasive problem that if you even think about our unemployment situation, I mean, what is it now, 34, 35%? It depends got, it, which figure. Yeah. And if you want to tackle unemployment successfully, right, uh, what do you do? You need to create jobs. How do you, what's the quickest way to create jobs? is you get industry to establish factories, you get them to establish manufacturing plants. We can't even get that right. It's very important for people to realize that um, Eskom was built on very cheap coal, dirty coal, uh, very bad coal actually. As, we, yeah. as the coal depletes, uh, it's getting worse and worse. There are huge issues around air pollution. There's externality costs. Uh, most of the generation of electricity happens up north yeah. Um, very, lots of new energy requires more generation uh, south, particularly in the mm -hmm. coastal areas, uh, high solar uh, regions. But more importantly, unlike Europe, um, our grid is an island. If you had load shedding up to eight even more and the grid collapse, to repower the, the, the grid will take uh, yeah. a long time because we'll have to find ways to, uh, to do that. Yeah. But uh, uh, let's talk about the book itself on, on mm. sabotage. And uh, do you want to pick up two or three things about sabotage and, and mm. what, what it's doing to Eskom? Mm. And secondly, uh, you, you do a very good profile of Jan Obelhauser, uh, mm. who is the CEO, and he's had a past history of working in Eskom and under the rater who worked at Sasol, uh, yeah. et cetera. Um, there's, an, we in South Africa in our politics, we tend to rely on great figureheads. Mm. Uh, we don't build institutions. Is there a concern that uh, in, your, in, the, in the early phase of the appointment, there were huge attacks on them, yeah. uh, race or, or whatever the issues are? Yeah. Um, so one, just to talk about some elements of that, and then later on we should talk about how do we build strong institutions 
that are not dependent on particular individuals and their yeah. charisma and so on. We have that with the president as well, uh, you know, Ramaphosa, <laughs> although uh, the, yeah. the charisma is falling uh, a little bit. But uh, if you can just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So back in, back in the, the, the late 90s, you know, as South Africa was transitioning to a democracy, there was a guy at ESCOM called Dr. Ian McRae who is known as, you know, father, father of ESCOM, father of electricity, you know, he's, he's, he's one of the first people, I think, who worked in a government institution to realize that transition was coming. And he already started planning on how to electrify right. townships, how to, you know, how, how they were actually, he already started planning that before the election ever even happened, which is fascinating. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. Um, and, and, and that's, and I say unfortunately, because ESCOM is the kind of place, it's so big, and it has such an important job to do that you, you have to sort of drive this, this sort of culture of, of uh, prestasi, is the Afrikaans word for it. Um, prestige. Prestige, you know. You have to sort of drive that, you have to instill in people a desire to do better and be no. better. And because, you know, ESCOM used to be a place that used to research some of the best power generation technologies in the world. The you know, first air-cooled coal fire power station, ESCOM technology. You know, and ESCOM was selling that technology to other parts of right. the world. And within a few years, all of that stopped. They stopped, it fell apart, they stopped training people, and it started just going downhill, downhill, downhill. Now, even you mentioned earlier that you, that you used to read the ESCOM balance sheets and used to see them in the black. And even at that time, in 2001, when ESCOM was voted the best in the world, the decay had already started. Right. You know, and, and that's sort of shocking when you think about that for a second, is how that happens in front of your eyes without realizing it. And that's where the sabotage comes in. So we have a situation where ESCOM has had 10 or 11 CEOs in the past decade. Um, Derater is now officially the second longest serving CEO since uh, Tulane Kabashe in 2007. And we've had uh, 10 or 11 already. Yes, yeah. you know. And Uber also is someone who grew up in an ESCOM right. house. His father worked for ESCOM for right. 25 years. He's got, his, sis, his sister at one point was an admin clerk in an right. ESCOM office somewhere. His, his uncle was a linesman. His father built transmission lines. He's ESCOM through and through. I mean, this man, when you see him walk in and he's got blue pants on, even on a Sunday, then you know, okay, now this man works right. for ESCOM, you know. Um, and he, 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 he spent himself 25 years and then at ESCOM and then around 2008, he was deeply involved in the conceptualization around building of new power stations. And of course, Madupi and Kusile were happening at the time. And Madupi and Kusile needed these boilers. And of course, this ANC link company, right. Chancellor House, was awarded that contract. And Jan was actually supposed to sign the contract. And right. he resigned. He walked away. Hmm. He said, I can't do this. And he spent 10 years in the private sector and then decided to come back to ESCOM. He, he credits his wife for saying to him, well, you know, maybe it's time to go back and do what you actually want to do. And, and he agreed. He could obviously make a lot more money in the private sector. He's hugely experienced. Um, and when he went back in June of 2018, he went back to a brand new position that right. had been created. Created because ESCOM had then had a CEO, Pakamani Hadebe, who was not an engineer, right. who didn't know the business. So they needed someone who could run the operation side of the business while you have a, a technically, financially-minded person looking after the money. And that's the situation we have now. We have these two figureheads who work very closely with the board 
and who also work very closely with a, a team of senior managers um, who both run, who, three of them, they run transmission, generation, and distribution. And at the moment, I think the, the ESCOM management team is the, the most well-rounded, most well-qualified management team that the company has had in the past decade. And it's, it's difficult to reconcile that with the fact that we still have load shedding. Right. Something is not working. And this is what we started picking up you know, in our research for News24, is that there were literally people breaking things on purpose. Mm -hmm. Literally. Tatuka was one of them, right? Yeah. So Tatuka, it's, you know, even in my mind, it's Sorry, the that's a power station. Yes. Oh, <laughs> it's a power station uh, in, in Mpumalanga. Right. It is, it, it, to give you an idea, it went from being sort of the third, fourth best performing power station about 12 years ago to now being the second worst performing power station. And I say the second worst because Duva power station, also in Pumalanga, is the, the worst performing one, and that one literally has two units that do not work right. ever at all. So that should give you an idea of how bad Tatuka is. Tatuka is the same place where, when the writer arrived at ESCOM um, in 2020, they found out that 1.3 billion rands worth of spares mm. had just simply gone yes. missing. You write about that, so yeah. incredible. 1.3 billion. Unbelievable. I'm, I'm May I'm going to come back, I'm going to come to you now. Uh, you read the book. First of all, just thank you for giving your time because I know Thanks. you're very busy Definitely. also spending time reading the book. But you do have a vision for the city. Uh, which, there's a couple of other cities also, uh, metros, let's call them metros, because they have uh, only metros that have good balance sheets are able to actually ask for special permission to. And you, you may want to talk about that. Um, is this a silent revolution that you see happening, that cities are going to play a bigger role? Absolutely. And if you can just explain you know, what the city of Cape Town is doing and, and why you're doing it. Sure. So, so firstly, the book uh, is fascinating because in Parliament, in the finance portfolio uh, for the last decade, I, I thought I knew what was going on right. at ESCOM and had looked at the finances and the balance sheets a hundred times. Was but this under Scopa? Uh, no, at SCOF, SCOF. Standing okay. Committee on Finance, right. yeah. And uh, the, to get some detailed inside mm. understanding of exactly how these scandals right. went down, it is much more shocking and extraordinary than, than you would have picked right. up from reading the newspaper on a daily right. basis, as, as we, we all have done. And really, Kyle builds this impression I think absolutely accurate, of ESCOM being turned into this enormous national ATM, basically, right. for everyone who wanted to get right. rich quickly. And that's, that's the way it's been treated for the last 15 years at least. Yeah. And he just picks up a few uh, stories to show how that, that that's happened. But it's just from everything from fuel oil, which I didn't actually know existed until I read the book, uh, to to tea and coffee, to, uh, and then of course the, the, the big kahuna, the massive one which hasn't even yet been touched, which, which you say, no, and you I be. think that's so true, is the, yeah, you, I mean you deal with the boilers, yeah. the Hitachi ANC link, but, mm. but the one that hasn't yet been touched is the coal contracts and, right. the, and the transport contracts. That's the, the that's biggest milking cow of, of, yeah. of them all. So really fascinating. So. Let me do the right thing and start by saying, please buy the book and, and read it. <laughs> I was going to say that at uh, the end. <laughs> I'll say it in the end as well. <laughs> um, but 
you know, the, I just want to pick up on what Kyle said about what it does to the economy. There's no doubt that, that mm. load shedding is the biggest handbrake on the South African economy. Mm. And when I was uh, thinking about running to, to be the mayor, I literally wrote down on one piece of paper, roughly this size, what are the things that I think are holding back right. mm. the country the most and what can, we, what can we at a local government level do about it? Right. And obviously number one on that list was load shedding. And the more that I read about it and spoke to Green Cape, I know you're involved in Green Cape a lot and spoke to some other experts, the more I realized without any technical understanding of power generation yeah. at all, there, there just doesn't seem to be any good technical reason why we have load shedding right. in South Africa still right. 15 years later. All of the reasons are actually uh, political. They're, they're, they're about not signing power purchase agreements. They're about uh, protecting the coal monopoly and not actually about whether the technology is available to end this right. now. Of course it's available. So you've actually just got to have the political will to, to press into that space. And so we've done that quite aggressively. Uh, and the idea is to reduce our reliance on ESCOM by between 15 and 20%. So people say, well, that sounds very small. But actually, that's all we need. Mm. We have, that's the gap that we need to make up right. to end stage five load shedding. Right. And, uh, and so that's what we push. That's our primary objective right. uh, in Cape Town is to, is to essentially be immune from stage five load shedding by the end of uh, you know, the next four years or so. Uh, and that requires buying a lot of independent power, about 300 megawatts in the first round. Uh, and then. Uh, for obvious reasons, you've got to have a way of storing that power right. because renewable power is not available uh, when you need it. And so in energy speak, as I've come to learn, that is called dispatchable power. Right. Dispatchable as in available at the flick of a switch. So later this year, maybe January, we will go to markets on a big storage right. dispatchable power tender. Will this be battery or...? Well, actually, we're not, we're not right. uh, we so technology agnostic, agnostic right, yeah. Right. So, so we're just saying to the markets, uh, you know, give us your ideas on dispatchable right. power. And we've, we've recently decided to remove the cap on that because right. we, we're already seeing a future where we increase the IPP purchase beyond right. 300 megs, right. which in ESCOM's world is a, is a tiny number. Right. I mean, you've mm. just heard that 46,000 uh, megs nationally. But that's what we need now to, to deal with load shedding. And when those two things come together, a new, new supply of power that doesn't come from ESCOM and the ability to right. store it, you can then deploy it, dispatch it, as I said, when you need it, and you can, you can actually start to end load shedding. Now, since we've done that, there's been a couple of uh, legal questions. Firstly, do we need this famous thing mm -hmm. called Section 34 determination? Right. And Which uh, the minister controls. Yeah, exactly. Right. This is ministerial permission right. to buy new power. Right. It's an absurd idea right. that you have to ask for permission to buy right. power in a country where there's not enough power. Uh, so we've just said we're going to actually go ahead without ministerial determination. We wrote a nice letter to say, please let us know if, if you object to objection. this. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going ahead. Since then, actually, in the middle of that stage six crisis right. we had, what was it, two months ago now, yeah. um, where we had those three terrible weeks of, right. of uh, regular stage six outages, that was, in a, in a sense, a really useful hmm. crisis for South Africa because the president then finally came out right. and said, right, you, you just blow aside all of these things, no more Section 34 determination required. So right. that's since been clarified. Right. Um, and we now see a Kuruleni metro, for example, right. pressing ahead without Section 34 determination. And we've seen massive interest from hmm. other cities, hmm. all, all 
uh, calling us up saying, right. right, how do we catch up now? So, right. there, so we've got some, we've actually got a great thing now right. happening where we've got some healthy right. competition. Etiquini, I see, has gone to market. Uh, Tswane has gone to market on a, big, uh, on a big thing. They got into a bit of hot water about it, but I think they'll get there. The, the point is, what I've learned personally, is that this is a very complicated procurement space. Right. And it's unprecedented. No one yet, for example, has done a utility-scale storage tender in right. South Africa. We will be the first right. in, in December. Uh, so, you know, I would have loved to have done that six months ago already. But just writing those tender specs has been so complex, and, and again, Green Cape has been hugely helpful there, that it's taken longer than I would right. have liked. But it is a complex uh, but very rapidly developing space and very exciting. Can I ask you uh, two questions related to uh, metros? The one is that uh, there's a lot of individuals that want to do rooftop uh, yes. PV. And the city's got some rules on net metering. Ba net metering basically means you could sell your surplus electricity into the grid, especially if you don't have household storage. How far has that gone? Because I know there was some pioneering work done. Yes particularly in Drunkenstein municipality and so on. And then the, the second one is really around um, uh, how you've managed to do, uh, reduce your load shedding in Cape Town. Oh, uh, sure. Uh, just, uh, just oh, there's, okay, so firstly, the, I'm really proud of this, this innovation. It's, I think it's the first uh, in the whole of Africa that we are paying cash right. for people's right. power. We've started with just businesses uh, anyone with a large right. roof space, factories, warehouses, uh, distribution centers, right. shopping centers, right. uh, and so on. And they sell us excess power and we will pay them, we'll actually EFT them at the end of the month right. for that cash. And that's important. Th that's implemented already? The, well, we've just closed the okay. registration round right. and the first payments will happen okay. in October. Okay. And the idea is to get the payment system working right. perfectly because it's new right. and then we can roll it out to right. households as well. Uh, the, so, so, I mean, that's, that's, we, we're trying to bring down the cost as well of net metering because there's quite an expensive meter that you have to install. At the moment, there's only one improved so, so meter. Do you, you feel that's incentivizing households to do more PV? I hope so. I mean, right. we've, got, we've got an incentive tariff, right. so we're paying, we are paying households more than we pay ESCOM, right. actually, okay. for the power. Um, and, and so we really hope that that does act as an incentive. But to be honest with you, the business case, the economic case for households is still much less attractive than the economic case for a business with a huge roof. Right. Because the, there's just economies of scale right. in the capital, sure. the upfront capital costs uh, that's, that you can do with a massive roof that you can't with a house. So uh, that's, that's the, the PV space. At the moment, we use this uh, wonderful 40-year-old piece of machinery that just hums like a... Down the road, yeah. Yeah, like, a, like an absolute uh, gem called Steenbrus Hydro Pump Storage okay. Station, built in 1979. Uh, and the, the key thing, people often say, well, you know, Cape Town can't really take credit for, for Steenbrus. Uh, but the, the, you know, this is what I love about the, the Cape Town Energy Team. You visit that facility, you can eat off the floor. It is hmm. spotlessly clean. Hmm. It works like a like a right. 1979, right. uh, I don't know, Mercedes S500 or something. It just, <laughs> it just, it just purrs. Uh, and and it, it, is, it is beautifully maintained. And that is why it's, it, it is probably right. the most efficient, after, after Kuburg, the most efficient power station in the country. 
Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know that for certain, but I'm pretty sure that's, that's true. It's right up there. Uh, so, and so that gives us, it has four units. Right. And we can, we can use those units to, we can switch them on during load shedding. Hmm. And then you run water down the mountain, essentially, and you generate, generate hydroelectricity. Right. And the, the key limiting factor, the reason we can't do that right. uh, with, you know, infinitely, right. is because the lower dam fills up quite quickly. Right. So once the lower dam is full, you're if up. you think of it like a battery, when the lower dam is full, it basically means the battery's empty. Right. Mm. Uh, and so you've got to wait a few days to pump the water right. back up the mountain right. and, then, and then empty the lower dam. And so what we are looking at now is, is how to expand this, the size of the I lower see. dam okay. uh, to excavate more space there. But here's the interesting thing, just to go back to something Carl was saying earlier. The last six months, we've done a lot of preparation for stage eight load shedding to try and get, and I totally agree with Carl, that is a picture you never want to right. see in South Africa. Never mind the riots and the looting and that, but every single basic service, we do not have enough diesel or enough diesel generators to keep our water filtration pump stations working. Mm. To keep so the essential services? Essential services will start to collapse, uh, with probably within 48 hours, actually, right. well, because eventually diesel will become such a hot commodity yeah. Uh, there will be so much competition Might be an for opportunity diesel. for car power, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So we've actually, for example, one small change. Right. We, we've got 15 diesel stores in right. the city. We used to fill those once a month. <laughs> we now fill them... Are these storage facilities? Yeah, massive okay. storage facilities. Right. Hundreds of thousands of liters of, of diesel that we, uh, that we store for, for our generators. Right. We used to fill them once a month. We now fill them twice a week. Wow. Just, in the, to, just to be prepared so that if this happens, we, we've got the most, you know, we've got full stores. Right. Uh, we, so we, we've gone through some detailed planning for, for stage eight, but what it meant was that during that stage six load shedding two months ago, we actually had an entire half of Steenbus, two units at Steenbus were kept in reserve that we didn't use to actually ameliorate load shedding right. when we could have. Right. Why? For that startup procedure. Yeah. Because if there is a national shutdown, you've got to have some spare capacity somewhere right, yes. to actually start up the entire That's right. grid again. That's right. That's right. And so we had kept half of Steenbrus in, in complete reserve uh, in, case of, in case of the right. worst case scenario. Right. Uh, so it is really something that we desperately want to avoid as a, as a country and as a city. Um, and that's, you know, so I hope that we can get those IPPs onto the grid as fast as we can. One, one more good news uh, story from your side, because we've had a lot, to, and I'll come <laughs> back to you, Carl. Um, yesterday I was reading, I think it was in the Mail and Guardian, that the, uh, if you were to procure all this power, you'd have tariffs that are 30% low. So, than, yeah. And uh, just uh, related to that, but municipalities depend a lot on electricity revenue. So how do you balance the books? Uh, with, with this level of uh, self-power yeah. and uh, being able to generate sufficient revenue to keep your balance sheet and yeah, your creditworthiness. Credit uh, and municipal finance managers across the country, CFOs, mm -hmm. are, are, are really panicky about right. this. And that's true in Cape Town as well. Uh, because the future is that, the, you know, the electricity business model is dying. Right. You don't need any expert to tell you right. that. Just look at a graph of electricity right sales at a municipal right. level. The, the business model is dying. So it is a case of, of you can't avoid business model reform, <laughs> which I think is great for the country. The way that you can get to cheaper tariffs, let me just explain that quickly, 
the power that we're buying now, this 300 megawatts, right. is significantly cheaper than ESCOM power. Right. Because renewables are just right. uh, are now basically a fraction of the right. cost. So even if you add the cost of storage, which is still to come, as I said, the second part of that puzzle, you get to a total cost of new power that is less than ESCOM's right. highest megaflex right. rate, which is about four and uh, four and seventy is that, or something. Uh, for what they sell on to municipalities. Yeah, we pay the megaflex rate, right. which is the highest uh, ESCOM rate, uh, you know, peak time, peak tariff. So the so the costs are very favorable. So over time, the more you can reduce your reliance on ESCOM and increase your reliance on renewables and storage, you can actually pass on those savings to consumers. And here's how it helps the, the, the financial model. You can still retain your margin. If, if we're paying four rand to ESCOM, and let's say with storage costs, we can deliver it for three rand 50, theoretically, there's actually a 50% extra margin, 50 cents, sorry, extra margin in this example, for the municipality. Now, what you could do is, is pass on right. 40 cents of that and, and, uh, and keep a portion of it. So you have to reach a certain level of scale before this business model flips, right. but it is going to happen. There's no doubt in my mind that it's going to happen because the old business model is dying as right. people go off the grid. Right. So, uh, so municipalities have to adapt. And, and the way that we can adapt is by investing heavily in renewables right. as fast as we can. Because ideally, what we want to be able to do is offer you, as a resident, say, you don't need to go and spend the 200 grand to, to make your house green, because actually we've already done it. Right. We've taken on the capital cost at a citywide level. Right. We've secured you from load shedding. Uh, if your business cares about green energy, we've given you green energy. And uh, you can actually have cheaper tariffs at the same time. Can, can I just ask you one more question? Sorry, Kyle, I'm going to come back to you. Uh, there, there are lots of other uh, constituencies that can't afford electricity. So there's the um, basic uh, electricity provision. Mm. How would the city manage that with this kind of transition that you are, which we, we, we're going to be forced into, mm -hmm. so we can't get out of it? Uh, no, you still. You're still always going to have to have a, a base load, which is right. why you, we, we can never uh, fully cut the right. umbilical cord with ESCOM right. uh, because renewables are just not permanently available and right. reliable. And you have to be able to have that base load that you can uh, supply to informal settlements right. uh, to, you know, that you can supply your our constitutional requirement right. for free basic electricity units. Uh, so th there is going to be an extent to which that's always going to be right. the case, uh, and, and we will always have to do that. There's, a, there's some exciting stuff happening around the concepts of microgrids, right. which you can do in, right. in, uh, in informal settlements, right. where you have a containerized uh, battery with, with um, solar panels covering right. the, the outside of the container, and that can provide power for you know, several hundred uh, residents, but that's still some way off. You've got to figure out how to mm. how to protect that infrastructure. You've got to figure out where to put it. Uh, so that's that's still some way off. Just on mm. microgrids, I mean, it's worth looking at what's happening in Nigeria, DRC, mm. Senegal. It's really starting to take off in a big time. Still, the cost of actually uh, putting those uh, microgrid facilities still expensive, but. Outside of South Africa, there's a massive yeah. uh, microgrid because they can't build huge uh, transmission line. Um, Kyle, you must have talked to ADR about the future of Eskom. Yeah. 
uh, as you know, uh, they won't be there forever. Um, one of the plans that they see are for reducing South Africa's dependency on one single utility. There are reforms in place. And we've only talked about generation, corruption in generation. Madupi is three times the cost yeah. of uh, all large projects, by the way. Yeah. Building another nuclear plant uh, will have uh, cost overruns for sure, yeah. even corruption. Um, <clears throat> so one is the whole just transition uh, yeah. platform that's being set up, the repurposing of coal plants, etc. Mm. So what do you see as the vision? How do we get out of the Eskom rut? And what's, you know, what's the, you, you've told the bad story, but what's the good story going forward? Because the crisis does lead to change, right? I mean, we, we're starting to um, see that. I'm going to have to disappoint you. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's no good news. Um, okay, there's no good news. And, and the reason for that is a guy by the name of Guere Mantashe yeah. and the political party he's affiliated to called the ANC. Um, I think the electricity policy and centralization of electricity generation mm -hmm. and distribution comes from, I don't know, 1970. Someone gave them a textbook from Russia or something. I don't know, and they've they've stuck to that solidly. They believe that this is the only way to go through. They're married to coal. They don't it's gas now. So. Well, you know, and this is the next thing. This is the next fad that they've gotten involved in with these stupid power ships that are going to cost way too much money. But they they are not thinking about the future. Mm. And I recently wrote in an opinion piece for News 24 that the president should fire Mantasha immediately, like on the spot, because he's just you know, clueless. And then he's arrogant about what he did. They not, can't you know. fire the chair of... No. Uh, he, he goes on TV and says, oh, well, ESCOM's got 15,000 megawatts just lying around. Why don't they just use it? And I'm like, you know, well, can someone please just sit down and explain that to the man who's actually the energy minister of the country, right. why those 15,000 megawatts are not available right now? And unfortunately, I, I don't think he answers to the people of South Africa. I don't think he cares. I think he's more worried about other things. So when I spoke to people at ESCOM, and I'm not going to mention any specific names here sure. in fear of getting people into trouble, there's a massive amount of frustration mm. over a lack of good policy, yeah. right. a lack of policy integration. The existing policy stands. It's worth to explaining to people that his hands are also tied, right? It's exactly. Highly dependent so on Andre de Reiter, yeah. he's right. the CEO of ESCOM. Right. He cannot go out to market mm. and procure more power. Right. He cannot build a new power station. The Department of Mineral Resources and Energy can, is the only department that can do that, and it doesn't even have political oversight of ESCO. Right. The P Department of Public Enterprises has, you know. So there's this mismatch of, and nobody really knows what, you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is sure. doing, and the right hand's just doing whatever it wants anyway. It's not really looking at the situation on the ground and right. making smart decisions. And I've been arguing this again and again every time I speak about the book, and people say to me, okay, so what is the sabotage? And I'll tell them, the, the, the theme that the sort of the current that run, the, under, the undercurrent that runs throughout the book is that the, the, the biggest amount of sabotage has been perpetrated by the ANC government in terms of bad policy, in terms of not thinking about energy future, in terms of you know sticking to rent extraction networks. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's as as the mayor mentioned. You know, coal. If I had to start working on coal and including it in this book, this book would have been a thousand pages long because... We hope the, your second book will come. Yeah. <laughs> the, the coal mafia, as we call them, because they, it's literally, it operates like a mafia, right. you know, and, and it, is, it is dirty and it mm. is thuggish and people get killed all the time. There's a, a young ESCOM, there's a young, there's a young woman at ESCOM who was 
you know, found buried underneath coal at one of the power stations, and I've been trying for more than a year and a half. They've got the guys who murdered her on CCTV. They've got every, I haven't even written the story yet because we're still trying to just yeah. get the police to do their job, you know, and it just, nothing happens. So this is the kind of thing that's happening on the ground, you know. People are speaking up because they see coal trucks dropping coal off where they're not supposed to, or they're doing this, and they right. just get murdered. So it's, it's something that I will get stuck into at some point, but I do have a lot of safety considerations around it as well, you know, so I have to start thinking about that before I dig into it. But it's going to require, as you say, something needs mm -hmm. to change, and it needs to change fundamentally. The president coming out and lifting the cap of embedded generation, which is, you know, the amount of electricity a business can generate without having to apply for a license. Gwede Mantashe wanted 10 megawatts. Yeah. The president put it at 100. That's which, right. Fantastic for him. Well, actually, the cap is not necessary. As yeah, well. they should remove the cap completely because no mine is going to build a thousand megawatt right. power station. Right. They are not challenging your monopoly. Right. The mine is going to build just enough with a little bit of a margin to operate their own business and then feed the rest into the grid because it costs a lot of money. So no one is going to say, oh, there's no cap. Let's go and build a massive, you know, 5,000 megawatt coal-fired power, power station and sell the electricity to people because... It's stupid, it takes 10 years to build the thing and it costs, you know, 150, sure. 60 billion rand. So th this is the kind of very basic thinking that needs to start happening at the union buildings and in cabinet. You know, fire the man, fire Guede Mantashe. He is too old, he doesn't understand what's going on and he is too married to rent-seeking patronage networks that we don't need in this country. Get rid of him, get someone young with, you know, the, the spirit and the verve and the energy and the brains to actually understand energy policy. And stop listening to people who make money out of the energy sector to make your policy for you. You might have to wait till 2024 for that. But, but I, I just want to oh, yeah, build sure. on the theme of rent-seeking. The, the, I think he's the acting director general at the moment of the National Treasury, Ishmael Mamonia. That's right, yes. yeah. Said something extraordinary in, the, in an interview a couple of weeks ago, which I saw the Kasatu mm -hmm. went nuts about, uh, and uh, an organization called the BBC, the Black Business Council, also uh, was a little bit hot under the collar about this. But he said that uh, preferential procurement in South Africa is entrenched corruption, has become entrenched corruption. Wow. An extraordinary thing mm. for the acting and he's a DG of the Treasury. One, by the way, of the yeah. Uh, of the National Treasury mm -hmm. to say. But you see this come out so clearly in the ESCOM stories that it is actually mm. just entrenched corruption. Right. And, you know, I, I always chuckle when uh, Gwede is painted as this kind of champion of the, of the ordinary coal worker, right. the coal miner. He's nothing of the sort. Right. He's a champion of the coal mafia right. mm -hmm. who have treated ESCOM as their milking cow for decades and have made tens of billions of rands mm. at the public expense while that institution has fallen apart and continue to do so. And that's what it's about. It's about rent extraction. And I think you're, in your book on Econ Oil, that's a brilliant example of how, mm. how that uh, operates. I want to give the audience, uh, nobody would have thought that electricity is an interesting topic uh, in South Africa. So we're going to take one question at a time. So I don't know if you can just put your hands up. And if you could just mention your name, please. Yes, please. Yes. Uh, good morning. There's a microphone over there. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. My name is Irene. Um, my question is, is for the mayor. It's a two-part question. The first part is to better understand the strategy of reducing reliance on ESCOM power. 
So is the future um, IPPs uh, with renewable energy generation capacity and storage capacity solely, or is it meant to be complementary with also encouraging households and businesses to build additional renewable generation capacity? And the second question, or the second part of my question is, if there is a complementary strategy with um, encouraging households to build more renewable energy generation capacity, are there plans or, or additional options for incentives to make the economics work better for households, for instance, uh, rebates on non-city rate, property rates, et cetera? Thank you. Thank you. Thank I think you so you've much. sort of answered the, it, but... Uh, it, on the first part of your question, it's definitely complementary. That's why, for example, we've started now the, uh, the policy evolution or innovation of, of paying people uh, for the first time for the power that they produce, first at a commercial level, for factories and warehouses, but once the payment system is running smoothly and, and tested uh, at the residential level as well. We also pay an incentive tariff already, uh, and I've, I've just approved that incentive tariff for the next three years. I wish I could actually approve it for a longer a timeline so that you could have some security that you would have that incentive tariff for five years or seven years. But we, local government works on a three-year budgeting cycle. Yeah, so that's I could, your municipal finance management. Exactly, yeah. We have something called an MTREF. Uh, so I'm only legally allowed to, I can say verbally now, it is absolutely my intention to extend it uh, past that, but there's nothing, there's nothing passed by council that will, you know, that's bankable. Uh, so we, we pay that incentive tariff. We, we're looking to try and bring down the cost of installation. We, we require certain safety checks by an electrical engineer, a certain kind of SABS approved meter, which is quite expensive. We're looking at finding cheaper ways to do that for households so that we can bring down the upfront cost. In terms of actual subsidies over and above the incentive tariff that we pay, it's, it's tough. I have a justice, like an equity concern uh, around doing that, because the, the households who are most able to invest in renewable power are, by definition, the, some of the most well-off households in the city. And I need to get my head around whether the, the city should be actively subsidizing those kind of households uh, to, to, to make that investment, when really we have so much work to do in the among the poorest residents in our city to, to deliver more dignity and better services and better infrastructure to them. So I think that what I want to do is just try and make it easier for those households to do it themselves um, and then to buy the power from them. And the power is not, uh, at the moment, the, the, the price that we pay for the power is, is itself an additional little incentive because we actually pay just slightly, nothing luxurious, a few cents more than we pay ESCOM. Uh, so we, we're paying a little incentive there as well. But I think that that gap's going to widen as the ESCOM price continues to skyrocket. Uh, and, and so that, you know, that incentive will become more and more attractive. So there's no doubt in my mind that over the next few years, it will become a more attractive space for people to invest in this. But primarily, our focus has to be on those with, where we can get the biggest yield. 80% of the power that we buy is going to come from the really big roof spaces. May, may can I just ask, uh, related to that, uh, do, do you have a sense of how many household, uh, firms and, and uh, properties are putting up? Uh, we're we're going to get a good sense right. now because we've okay. just put out this, uh, this request to, to sell right. us power. Right. Uh, it actually closed at the end of August, so I, I, I need to hear how, 
how many uh, we got. But I, uh, I suspect that it will be, in the first round, probably no more than a few hundred right. big roof spaces. I'm right. talking about, you know, one megawatt okay. uh, or, or 50 kilowatts, or a couple hundred kilowatts, whatever. Mm. So the, I think it will be no more than a few hundred in the first round. Of course, there are tens of thousands of residents right. who would like to do that. Right. Uh, and as the economic case gets better over the next few years, I think more of them will. Okay. Carl, did you want to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to add, right. the mayor mentioned that ESCOM tariffs are going to get more and more expensive. I just, it's something that just always sits with me. ESCOM has had below-cost tariffs for electricity for forever. Um, they don't recover enough money to actually keep ESCOM running from the tariffs that they charge. And again, this massive centralized system that sells power nationally, it's unaffordable, it's cumbersome, it, it can't work. Um, so just prepare yourself that if NOSA eventually allows ESCOM to recover tariffs that ESCOM really wants, so they can start fixing power stations, it's going to become enormously expensive to have electricity in your house. It's, it's an unfortunate reality. But there's also a benefit, right, in generating power closer to the user. Mm. Because if you transfer yeah. electricity from 2,000 kilometers away, there's a loss Efficiency of at least loss, yeah. about 16, up to 20%. Yes, yeah. correct. So, any other questions? Yes, sir. If you can just mention your name. Yeah, go ahead. I'm just going to give you a microphone, if you don't mind. I can speak up. I think they want to record The chaps at the back won't yeah. hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, my name is Lester. Um, there's, there's lots of talk about the, the words just transition. And um, my understanding is that that just transition um, refers to justice, uh, some restorative justice or, or some sort of, um, you know, um, some sort of way that, that this um, energy reform process, um, you know, sort of gives back to people uh, and, and doesn't just focus on, you know, necessarily those people who, who work in coal jobs. Mm. Um, so I'm keen to hear from, from all of you, um, uh, or like what other um, aspects of this just transition um, do not get spoken about in the media because I and and that the it's not just yeah. transition. Yeah, that's an interesting one. So obviously, as you say, you know, the, the just transition is not just about leaving coal miners behind. Um, it's it's also about you know being just to the environment. It's about being just to people who previously didn't have electricity, cannot afford electricity. So it's a it's it's a morally it's a very wide encompassing sort of do good initiative. Let's try and move away from pollution or, or you know methods of generating electricity that cause pollution, while not cutting off hundreds of thousands of jobs overnight and leaving people without an income. There are towns in Mpumalanga that rely completely on coal, the coal mining economy. Those towns would sh have to shut down and people would have to you know move their livelihoods. And then also, you know, I think Cape Town has a particular problem with this in, in terms of, you know, the, the, the geographical dis distribution of where people live and, and the inequality that those various areas have. So that is something that, uh, you know, politically the mayor of, and, and, you know, practically and politically the mayor of Cape Town and, and his political party are going to have to manage very, very carefully. But at the same time, they also don't call the policy shots. 
they have to implement basically what is what they can and when they can. So it's, it's, going to, it's an enormously difficult thing and you raise a very valuable point and I think you've given me a wonderful story idea to write about the things that we never talk about in this transition. So thank you, Lester, for that. I really appreciate it. Uh, if I could just yeah. add the one really fascinating technical point which I think really helps with the just transition is that the, the biggest grid capacity in South Africa is unsurprisingly in Mpumalanga. So the best place for renewable energy is not the Northern Cape, just because it's most, most sunny. The best place for renewable energy is in Mpumalanga, because there's no delay in connecting to the grid. The capacity is all there, uh, whereas it's not there in, in the middle of the Karoo. So, you know, the, the other point to make is that the, it's not, it doesn't have to spell the end of coal just because South Africa isn't using it. There's still a massive export market. And, and we are doing that, but, but you know, it, to an ever lesser degree, uh, the, the train line doesn't work from, from the coal fields in Mpumalanga to Richards Bay coal terminal, export terminal. It works intermittently at best. It's half the capacity. Yeah, yeah. It's half, the capacity has, has halved. Uh, so you could still have for many, many years to come uh, the South African coal industry supporting coal users around the world. Uh, you know, very healthily, and still have renewable investment in Mpumalanga, where those people work right next to where the grid capacity is. But you need to have someone who understands the future business model of how energy is going to work. And it's not pushing against the tide of history, like our national minister currently is. Um, so I really agree that he needs to, he needs to go. He needs a just transition out of the job. <laughs> he, yeah. he does have, by the way, a just <laughs> energy transition unit. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, just to say on that particular issue, the Presidential Climate Commission has, uh, and I, you know, they've run very good open processes, virtual meetings, uh, where they have debated with a wide audience, different interests around the just transition. In fact, they have a series now, I think it's over four weeks, mm -hmm. on the energy sector. Uh, it's worth you going on the website and also registering for uh, events that are coming. And they are trying to tackle this particular issue. I do think that um, the most important thing that should be just is actually to stop corruption, right? Because you're diverting resources mm. away from uh, other types of uh, social benefits that uh, yeah. uh, is not getting done because we, we have parasitic uh, mm. extraction of, of rents mm. from from the system. So the first call of justice is not just about the future energy system and how it creates jobs, it's actually trying to get deal with the unjust yeah. uh, which, which uh, is issues. Salim, which is of course very, very difficult when the people tasked to clean up the corruption are sure. involved in it. Sure, and it also we must also make sure that the IPPs are also uh, yeah. uh, free from, from this. Uh, any, one, one more question? Yes. Uh, I forget your name again. Linda. Linda, that's right. Yes. And then we'll go to back there. We, we literally got six minutes, so I want to give you, both of you one minute uh, yeah. or 30 seconds to, to say something. Just to the mayor, um, I just want to find out, um, you, 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 you've got plans in place for a stage eight load shedding. I mean, how realistic and how incorporated into your thinking is that possibility? <laughs> And what is the capacity of the storage, um, the, the dispatchable storage uh, battery that you put out for tender? Thank you. Thank you. You're yeah. saying how well prepared are we, or, or how likely do we expect it? Yes. How likely, how oh, likely so I had this 
very funny conversation, which I will, I don't mind um, mocking him about publicly with Andre de Reiter in about February this year in our first meeting. I said, look, how worried do I need to be about stage six and above? And he said, no, 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 look, I mean, that's, that's just not going to happen. It's, it's very unlikely. So I had great pleasure in SMSing him during the <laughs> stage six and saying, uh, <coughs> Was this before the stage six? Yeah, this was, this was back in February, March. Okay. Um, so when, when that happened, we got our disaster risk management team together, all of our basic services, sewage, water, electricity, and we started to come up with detailed plans for how to handle stage eight. It's not pretty. It's not pretty. So it, it, we, we, will, we will handle it as best we can, uh, let's put it that way, but it, will, it, it really won't be uh, pleasant. But I, I think that the risk of that has receded quite a lot. I think that there is still reasonable risk of stage six happening again, uh, but I just really hope, uh, our, our approach, let me put it this way, Linda, our approach has been, I trust that Andre and Jan and the team are getting it slowly but surely under control and that that risk is slowly receding, but we are going to prepare for the worst in any case uh, and just be as well prepared as we can. Yeah. Then on the dispatchable, uh, dispatchable tender, we've actually removed the cap uh, so we had, we had planned on a cap of 500 megawatts. We've, we've decided really what is the point of the cap. If, if the price still comes in at under ESCOM, mm. then we may as well buy as much as the market offers. So you could end up with much more then? So we've just, we've just yeah. removed the cap. It will be capless. Uncapped. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take one more question at the back there. And uh, if we can give the microphone. Thanks. And then we're just going to try to conclude. It's been really fascinating, I have to say. Hi, um, I'm Khadija. I was wanting to know from the panel, um, there have been concerns, of course, around uh, sabotage and extortion gangs also targeting key infrastructure areas. And how does that then play into um, the situation that we are experiencing now in terms of uh, having the local production of uh, electricity and then also looking at how it's impacting on some of the greater concerns around energy production in the country? It's a, a really good question. So here's, good. let me give you an example. Uh, in the beginning of my book, I start and I talk about a power station in, named Latabo. It's ESCOM's best running power station. They toppled the pylon over um, nearly stage six load shedding because it was already stage two load shedding. You live in Cape Town, if I'm not mistaken. That power station's in Vereniging. It's a thousand odd kilometers away from you. So if you had had stage six load shedding that day, that power station a thousand kilometers away that you've probably never seen with your own two eyes is the reason that you were struggling to cook food on a gas plate stove in the corner somewhere. And that just never, ever made sense to me. It's never made sense to me that we have this massive gargantuan, you know, system that is ESCOM. Um, it procures 120 billion rands worth of goods a year. The opportunities for corruption are limitless, yeah. limitless. You can steal literally from money from, you can make money on pens to milk to toilet paper up to you know, a 15 billion rand tender to refurbish a nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just too big for one person or one executive team sitting in Johannesburg to manage. Mm. And if you have any problem, if it's smaller, it becomes more manageable. But now you have 16 power stations that are, you know, they are... They're always in trouble. People infiltrating those power stations, toppling pylons, mm. throwing bolts into nuclear reactors and all sorts of things, you know. Um, and you can never, ever really put your finger on it because it's so big and it's so large and it's so spread all over the place that you can't ever really police it. 
So if you have a smaller system, a smaller group, one city looking after its own electricity. And far more decentralized. Far more decentralized. And then you also, it's also easier to hold people accountable. Yeah. If Cape Town doesn't have electricity, it's the mayor's fault. You know, it's not some guy in Joe. Right. Yeah. So may, may right. I not sabotage in the book, but sabotage outside of the book. How yeah. do you guys deal with that? That's a great question, yeah. uh, Khadija. This is a rising concern in, in everyone's minds in South Africa. Everything is now subject to extortion gangs. Every construction site, every, every bit of work that goes on in a community, it's, it's really very alarming. Uh, what's, what's, uh, we don't have a lot of time to get into this in detail. I'll just leave you with one thought. What, what's concerning to me is how little progress organizations like the SSA, the State Security Agency, like Crime Intelligence, have made into these new forms of, of highly organized, very violent crime gangs. This extortion is not being done by you know, some dude with a, with a knife or a gun in a community. These are well organized. They have got four by four vehicles. They've got armored vehicles. They've got high powered weaponry. The, these are organized criminal syndicates and we have not made any inroads into cracking them in any, in any major way. Um, and that concerns me about what SSA and crime intelligence are actually doing. Uh, you know, Nothing. what are they focusing on? I, I, I struggle to think of, of any major criminal success that they have had uh, in, in South Africa in the no. last couple of years. And the, the absence is really felt. The, those are two other institutions whose collapse we need to talk about at some stage, because their absence is really felt. I have to conclude this. I just wanted to thank uh, Kyle and the mayor. But Kyle, I just to, maybe you want to think about the stuff you can't say factually, but fictionally, mm. you might want to write a fiction story <laughs> about all the real true stories of what's going yeah. on. And you can put different names on the characters. Thank you, mayor. Thank you. Really I just want to say to Kyle, thank you very much for writing the book. I understand the safety concerns. Uh, and so thanks for your bravery in, in going and uncovering and explaining these stories to us. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. This event was made possible by the support of the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture, the City of Cape Town, and the Heinrich Bull Foundation. See you in the next episode. <laughs>